Hello, welcome to Feature in a Short. My name is Justin Joseph Hall. As many of you listeners know, to cap off the end of our season and during awards season for the film industry in general, we have our own award, the Fresh Air Award. We gather four cinephiles to talk about a decade of filmmaking. And in giving out our award, we're not looking for what is best from these years, per se, as so many other podcasts do this challenge. But rather, we look for the film that has endured or changed movies in some way. And the movie that has the most lasting impression on filmmakers. This podcast is called Feature in a Short, and therefore, a feature and a short must be chosen from each of our contributing cinephiles' lists. Each cinephile will choose five movies that change the art form from the 10-year period. If the piece contains moving images and came out in the decade we're discussing, it's allowed to be considered for the award. Last year, we talked about the 2010s. Four cinephiles, including myself, chose the film The Act of Killing, the documentary by Joshua Oppenheimer, to represent the decade. The Act of Killing is an experimental feature documentary that was unique, self-reflective, and able to teach a new kind of modern truth. This year, we look back as far as we possibly can in the relatively short history of cinema, considering features and shorts. We're beginning with the decade 1900 to 1909. So what was going on before 1900 in movie making? Well, way back in 1833, moving pictures really began with stroboscopic animation, projected by a so-called magic lantern. This is likely the earliest form of moving image projections, often by candlelight. The very first motion photographs were captured and put together in 1878, and it was given the title Sally Gardner at a Gallop. That's a racehorse. Sally Gardner is a a racehorse. Pictures of this horse and jockey were turned in a circle, creating an appearance of motion of a horse running. And this was an actual horse photographed. Some consider this the first film. This made cinema able to represent a 3D world visually with just a 2D medium. But cinema was different. It wasn't like a drawing or an illustration. It was a 2D medium that added the third dimension of time. Projected cinema began actually in 1893 with Thomas Edison showing his films. Then in 1894, color motion photography was first created. People use outlines of photos and colored frames by hand. But that didn't catch on. It cost way too much money. So in 1895, the Lumiere brothers showed 10 films at an exhibition. After these few technological advancements, film was considered born. By 1896, film had already been found on the other side of the planet, and even capturing moments in Japan. The diaspora of the art form had begun. Film was mostly centered in the United States and France where it was invented but most of what we know now from the time is Eurocentric. Even films shot outside of the continent were often shot by Europeans. And of many of these early films, they were highly flammable. And they say 80 to 90% of the films in early silent cinema have been lost. Now, the content of these movies were really dominated by explosions, heads, and unbelievable talents. These thrills usually only lasted moments. So almost immediately after the technology had spread, people started telling stories with this new form of communication. And this really changed cinema. It wasn't just something to look at, but it had meaning behind it. And in 1897, synchronized sound cinema was invented by Thomas Edison, but it wouldn't be fully brought to the masses for another 30 years. 
So all the films that we're going to be talking about today from 1900 to 1909 are going to be silent films. In the 1900s, what was the attitude and the accomplishments that took place during that decade from 1900 to 1909? Some of what the viewer saw was different from human reality. Soon storytelling ideas like matching action across two different shot setups was tried. With this, editing was born. Stories no longer had to be told within one frame. That same year, the concept of a reverse angle, and it blew away the idea that movies had to be told on a stage in front of an audience, as it was in a play, as it set the audience within a world instead of watching it from a distance. Most of what filmmakers were discovering early in the decade was how to make audiences understand storylines with no words or any previous knowledge of the story. By 1901, movies had learned how to speak with the use of intertitles. Now, intertitles were the short, readable words that explained plots and are still used today. They were shown in between the pictures. In 1903, the distance and angle of the camera when capturing moments began to catch people's attention during playback. Close-ups were used for comedic effect for the first time. Before that, almost everything was told in long shots, having somebody's full body in frame. Eventually, costs to make films came down, and interest rose from paying spectators. In the same year we got a close-up, we also had our first film break the 40-minute mark. That still survives today, making it the first feature-length film that was released in 1903. In addition, one of the first noticeable trends in cinema probably came from accidents. When capturing a sequence of pictures in a row, stopping, and then restarting the recording, there was some time missing in the recording when you stopped hand-cranking the film camera. So when a movie was replayed and the camera had been stopped in this way and showed back in real time, during the playback, if anything in the visual field had moved when the recording was stopped, objects seemed to move or disappear instantly in the playback, especially if the camera hadn't moved at all. So this was the magic of movies. You could visually see time being replayed at a different rate from reality. This idea really catapulted filmmakers when creating movies as an art form. Movie magic, the term we still use today, was used often in storytelling throughout the decade. Probably most famously by George Méliès, a French director who made hundreds of films during the decade. Now, the one silent film that most everybody studies in school when you go to film school is A Trip to the Moon. In A Trip to the Moon, he likes to tell the story sort of like a play, using stage props, something that the audience is familiar with, but he also used the magic and mystery of cinema. This combination of acting out the play, manipulating time, and storytelling was the creation of visual effects in movie making. Time was not only compressed and edited, it was also expanded and examined when slow motion recording was documented in 1904. In 1906, the movie magic furthered itself with the creation of stop motion animation. There were films back in the day of furniture attacking people, cheese attacking, combing people's hair, a bunch of different things. By 1909, the first fully animated film was created, and so almost all the tools filmmakers use today captivated audiences back at the beginning of cinema, for the most part without using sound or color. That brings us here to the 1900s Fresh Air Award. So let's introduce our guests here. Two of them have been on the show before as guests. We have Elizabeth Chatelaine, who was our first guest uh, on the podcast. So if you want to hear her, go back to the very first episode. She has an upcoming project that she's doing with Four Women Films called Paper Geese. So Elizabeth, you want to say hi real quickly? Hi, everybody. I'm glad to be here. 
And then we have Inga Moren Tapias, or she has been an appointed contributor before on the show. She brought her short film. We met over at DCTV, where we hold our holiday mixer every year. We both worked on the Quinceanera series for HBO. Hello, very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. And then we have Shirley Venard, who is co-star in Prologue, our latest short film, and is touring now around the country. Yes, hi, I'm thrilled to be here. I did some research on the, our decade. It's just like today. There were wars, there was famine and hunger, and that's when all the fun things started on film. And it was so interesting that we parallel that time. All right. With that, let's jump in. Everybody's going to present five films. I think everybody watched most all of them. But we'll start with Beth. Let's have you present your first film, and we'll go from there. I was kind of waffling between a couple of them, but I think the film that had the most impact um, on the future of cinema was Trip to the Moon, made in 1902. First of all, it's a very it's a sci-fi, so it's a very imaginative story. All the sets and all of the costumes are like very intricate and different editing sort of tricks and production design tricks and and other effects that I think he was really experimenting with this millier. So some of the things that stuck out to me um, were the use of the sets to make deep space even though they were clearly on something more like a stage or they definitely weren't like on, on location anywhere, the sets would really create a sense of deep space. So like it was almost like a 3D type of feeling. One specific example is when they go out on the roof and you can see like chimneys in the distance and there's like smoke coming out of them. So it really gives you a sense that you're in a space that you're not in. And then also the fact that the spacecraft has both a two-dimensional and a three-dimensional feel to it, which is like very fascinating. It seems like, oh, it's 2D, but then people walk into it. And then he does use several dissolves to transition, which is sort of a new thing. He also used these like tricks where one of the people would hit someone and then they would like go up and smoke and they would disappear. So yeah, I think what was interesting about this time period, it was about the experience of seeing it. It was all about sort of like this like spectacle of like, what can you do to, to like awe the audience? I think the other thing that was very new was this idea of a narrative. So it's like that there's actually a story, which is different, I think, from what came before, where it was more like, oh, like, okay, we're watching like someone hula hoop or we're watching somebody like the strong man or whatever. Like you're just watching like sort of clips or or possibly like um, real life things that are happening or like a piece of theater or something. So this was something that was like a clear narrative. The story also involves like tension and conflict and also was kind of a new thing for cinema. I'm glad that you brought this movie up first because, you know, it's in our intro and uh, and I think it is the most, by far the most memorable movie from this time and it is the most iconic uh, and just the rocket ship landing in the moon's eye, uh, I think is a picture that everybody knows, you know, animation in its early stages. And the other thing that I wanted to just quickly mention about this film is that Melier created over 500 films in his career, which is an insane amount. And this is the film that he's known for out of those 500. And people know him to this day, 120 years later, because of that movie that he made in 1902. 
actually, when they first showed this, it was at a fair and the guy didn't want to buy the film. When then they showed it and there was such a demand for the film that the guy paid Melier extra despite refusing to pay him ahead of time. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Shirley, if you want to present your first film. I would love to. A Vida y pas- La Pasión de Jesus Cristo. Yeah, which translates as... Um, to the life and passion of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought um, I would never get out of my seat. It was so long. Features didn't start until the 1900s. So this is the very first film that is over 40 minutes. I think there is a quite efficient storytelling. I mean, they went through majority of the Bible really quickly. I mean, almost all of the New Testament. Both Inga and Beth also had this on their lists. Yeah, I mean, I guess what's great about the story of Jesus is that most people are pretty familiar with it. So the actors probably didn't have to do too too much in order to convey what was happening. But yeah, they utilized all these things that, again, you would see in that Melier piece, which was like transposing things like the angels, when the angels come in, utilizing some of these tools um, that Melier had and using those to kind of create the miracles. This is the only feature that I pick, and you know, it was one of the only features of that time. And coming from a Latin American background, I have seen this film before. I think I saw it a long time ago. They showed it to us when I was doing my first communion. I know they started just doing the little vignettes of the films, and then they started putting them together, and they kind of like show part of the film, and it was so successful that they just continued adding for a period of seven years. So I thought that was really ingenious. The director, Fernando Zeca, was Parisian, and uh, he worked with the Spanish uh, Segundo do Chamon, who ended up directing a whole bunch of films himself after this. But one thing that I thought was interesting is that Zeca was Parisian-born, and he was born to a family of actors and entertainers. So he already had this in his background. And um, before his work, in motion pictures, he actually was a musician who would play in cafes or on the corner in Paris. So, you know, sounds like a dream artist job. And he actually did voiceovers and some of the uh, for some of the first audio recordings as well. So he was a performer at birth, really, you know. Well, that's interesting because he did defer to the actor's ability. It wasn't mm-hmm. just a second thought. He did respect the actors, and mm-hmm. but there wasn't an overabundance of of lecture. He wasn't trying to convert us all. It was just the story. And there was a great deal of humility that came really across the screen. Ingrid, what's your first? The next film I pick is called Like Lou, La Coya. It was a film by Alice Guy. It was uh, made in 1907, and I love this film because of the use of comedies about this boy that is just going around, gluing everything, you know, around him. What I really loved about it was the comedy of it, the fun that the filmmaker was having, and... You know, you only have visuals, you don't have any sound, and you can still see the the comedic timing and, you know, how funny everything is really, really funny. Like the ladies that are sitting on the chair and they, they get glued to the chair and then they touch the stairs and they get glued to the stairs. The other thing that I thought was cool is how they set up the gag at the beginning where he, like, sticks something that he know he can get apart 
just to show this is glue, you know, like the very first thing that they do. There was a scene where I think they were taking, you know, the people away and the people had babies and one guy took a baby and turned him around like 180 degrees. And he was a real baby and he was hanging off his arm. And I was like, wow, like that time that's you know people there was no you know <laughs> shell labor lows or anything like that who knows how long those babies were working there are also babies in the in the jesus um oh yeah one too Baby when they jesus. were all getting <laughs> taken i was like oh i my couldn't God. believe oh, that no. I, I was like what are they gonna <laughs> do I thought, they're gonna fly I thought well, and with the they had swords in that one i was like that's too close to the that's not a fake baby. I, no, <laughs> I was like, I was like they're like flailing them around. Babies. This is before SAG <laughs> <laughs> or child labor laws. Either of those. <laughs> yeah. Oh god. I mean, the comedic timing was really great, and then also the use of physical comedy, which I think maybe starts a little bit earlier than this film. But I feel like she's really honing in on that because I think hilarious. I watched three of her films and. Even though, like, I didn't pick them as far as pushing cinema forward, I felt like she was really, like, creative and also just, like, had a knack for comedy without using words. This is the director that I'd never seen anything from. But with her, it was, like, a treasure trove. She was actually a secretary at the at a photography company, and she started in 1894. That's a year after Edison. Uh, had his invention come out. But a year before, the Lumiere brothers showed their first 10 films. And what actually happened is being in Paris, she ended up going to that event. And she saw the first films that were shown in France. She said, I want to make narrative films out of this. I want to tell stories. And so she created, within a year, one of the first narrative films, even before the decade that we're talking about, and she created movies up until 1919 when she went bankrupt and divorced her husband. And That's great that she's like a woman filmmaker. It's like you almost think... Um, they say she like might have every, been the only one. She, Yeah, I mean, very possibly. Something kind of off of what Inga was saying is that she utilized like locations, which um, I think not many... Like you look at Millier and it's like, you know it's a theater. But with her... It's like we feel like we're there with the people, you know, and we're watching it ourselves. It's interesting. It reminds me of one of the Lucille Ball shows. There's a famous um, part where she's like at a chocolate factory and she's supposed to be like making the chocolates and like she can't wrap them fast enough. So she just starts eating them. <laughs> and the whole, you know, the whole thing plays out in one shot. And it's just all about the comedy of like what Lucille Ball is doing. And it's it's about the physicality. I thought of that when I was watching Rescued by Rover, 1905. And just to jump in, the, this story is basically an early Lassie film that stars Akali. I just thought it was precious, but when the director would glance and say, how am I doing? It seemed like <laughs> that several times he was saying, I, I hope this is going well. I felt he connected totally with the viewer. It was very inclusive. I loved the storytelling. And that hysterical scene, the boat parked perfectly so, aha, they're going to use that boat. That's in the scene. We, we know. <laughs> what's, actually, what's actually really funny is that it pans over and you can see there's a bridge. <laughs> I didn't like, see that. It's like, okay, why didn't you just go over the bridge? 
I'll present my first one that I think I'm alone on, but I love this. This is the earliest one that we have. It's called The Enchanted Drawing, and it's from 1900, right at the turn of the century. And so this is a short film that I think it's like two, three minutes. But what I loved about it was the seamless cuts. There's animation involved and changing of this artboard that you're seeing an artist illustrate, and the illustration comes to life. And not only that, when it comes to life, it transforms into a real object into the illustrator's hands. He draws, a, I think it's a glass of wine, and then it pops in his hands. He takes it. Maybe he drew, he drew a hat, pops into his hands. And um, I just thought it was so seamless, especially the very first edit. I'm like, whoa, how did you do that? That's so perfect. Everything's, when you watch Melier, he uses smoke and mirrors and everything vanishes and it makes it look more like magic. But this was more realism, you know, and a combination of very early animation, watching somebody very talented on screen, which was common at that time, and then to incorporate the drawings into real life, something that you can't do unless you have something magical like film. I love this film. And even for myself that I am an editor, I have to be like, wait a second, how did he do that? You know, and to think at that time, they were already trying to jump on time and show you motion. You know, it was also so simple. One shot, the artist, the piece of paper where he was drawing and something to draw with. So, you know, that's what I keep going back to in this film, that they were all so simple and effective. So the next one is called The Great Train Robbery from 1903. So it's still very early. It's actually one that I taught editing um, for a while at the New York Film Academy. And this was one that I would show to my students um, because of the use of um, continuity editing. And because so, of it, it blew up when it came out. Yeah, I mean, just... yeah, totally. But yeah, what you see a lot is going from frame right to like frame left. And then the next one comes in frame right to frame left. And this is something that, you know, we have to teach um, film students. And we've been trained now, having watched so many films, that we're like, oh, yeah, like it's going that way. It's going to come back in like in the frame, you know, like on the other side. Um, I would say I even watched other films, other Chase films, and they they don't do that. They they go out the right frame and then they're like <laughs> running in a different direction and, and it does throw you off. And they were coming out at the exact same time. But this is this it made it explode because he figured this stuff out. Totally. Yeah. And the other thing that's, uh, I think, important to note is like about halfway through, there's sort of two parallel stories happening. And they also used camera movement, which was something that was pretty new as well. And then, of course, we have this really strange thing at the end where there's like an address to the audience where the villain is looking straight at the audience and he like takes his shotgun and like points it at the audience and then shoots it and then shoots it again, and he's looking straight at us, you know? And so, again, this is about the spectacle of being film. It's this sort of thing where you'd get a reaction out of it if you were watching it, like, in a theater. And it's like, what, what whoa, like, what was that? <laughs> Throughout the entire thing, they don't make any, the actors don't make any reference to the audience that's watching at all. And then you have this direct address at the very end. And actually, there are some versions of this that did... Um, uh, as Inga was saying um, in the in the life of Christ, how they had you know colored the frames, and there's some versions of this one also that have colored frames, but they did it later, and probably in the same way, Inga, as you said that like you know the, that film had been created over a period of years. Like I think the painting of the frames um, maybe came at a later point, and then they added that in. 
I think often with the color, they would put money in to put color in and paint it, and then they would replicate that. So it would be a replication of the original one. They would paint that, and then at least that's how I understood. And I wanted to add, they say, you know what? I don't need to have a steady background anymore. You know, we can start in a little bit of moment. So it's like the seeds to what is to come in the future. The next film I picked is called Fantasma Guri. 1908 by Emily Cole and I love this film. This film was so revolutionary for me because this is like the beginning of animation and I thought it was so imaginative how the same line just became the next scene and I just can't imagine how they make the film. They had to draw every single frame and even though this is a short film, you know, it has a lot of frames. <laughs> He was just using white lines and a black background. He was able to make it come alive. First off, I should say this is the only film that all four of us picked for our top five. So I think that says something. And uh, number number two, the, the way that they did it with having white uh, instead of a black pencil or anything was it was put on a negative. And so every every frame that he drew, it was just the opposite. And that really made it stand out as well because it looked different from all of the like the enchanted drawing where it is just black pen on paper. Even if you read the Wikipedia page, I think it throws forward 20 years to one of the biggest film movements that there is that has nothing to do with animation, despite this being the very first animation in film that's a full screen. It also has such an impressionistic feeling which was the biggest movement in France 20 years later where Emile Cole came from. And uh, he eventually worked in the United States after this, but this was his first film that he animated and he made many others after it, but it's his most famous. So it, You're right. I thought too, is this stream of consciousness or is he staying up late at night drawing these? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have one really interesting joke. I did take an animation class uh, when I was at the University of Texas And unfortunately, a lot of animators ended up dying in like fires in the middle of the night because the film was very flammable. So what would happen is like they would fall asleep and then like there something would like catch on fire and then they would like end up dying. <laughs> like that happened to like three different animators <laughs> for whatever reason. For the next film that I was going to share. So I'm the only one who, who didn't pick the very first feature film as my feature film. And the reason why it didn't is because I've seen a million Passion of the Christ, and I feel like that was set a long before that. So here is my argument to see what you guys think about the first real feature-length documentary, which which was exactly what you think of when it, with a documentary. It had a camera, and it was capturing what was going on. I mean, you can say it was the first direct cinema film. There's obviously no narration over the top because there is no sound. But what you see is a coronation, everybody walking towards the coronation. This huge parade made for a king who's coming back to his country, Belgrade, in 1904. And the, the film is called The Coronation of King Peter I of Serbia. This one has a lot of multiple shots, but it really just captured as many of the people of Belgrade as they possibly could. Uh, and it's about 40 to 50 minutes long. It's not quite as good either as like Moscow and clad snow, which is very similar and a lot shorter and jumps around the city on a snowy day in Moscow. But it really documents the time. And it's one of the earliest times that we just see people being on the streets in Europe. 
And I thought that was one of the coolest things ever. I mean, so lucky that we have this and we can see what people were like at the time. We can reference this when we're making other films. It is by far the earliest document of moving people that we have. I just think that's amazing. And it's just a natural, things don't look that much different. People's clothing don't look that much different. You see who's ragged and torn. You can tell the difference between the rich and the poor. And uh, everybody's just gathered for this huge parade, just like we do today. And it's not the biggest day of their lives, but it's an event that I'm sure everybody remembers because they're out on the street. I think we're just privileged to be able to see that. And even to see a little bit after the parade ended, landscapes in different parts. I, I really just love the piece. What struck me was actually the the pieces that were after the coronation, where it was just the townspeople and like farming and just like everyday things that people in Serbia were doing. And to me, maybe they weren't going for like a political statement, but I think it is a statement. It's It's saying like, look at this, look at the difference between these two things. And they're not saying, oh, is it right or is it wrong? But to me, I think it does say something about the society at the time. So yeah, I also felt like it was powerful in a lot of ways beyond just a documentation of of a place and a time, even though that is also very important, I feel like. You know, what really struck me about this film, just like, you know, Beth was mentioning and, you know, almost, yes, there could be a political statement because he was showing, you know, contrast between classes and whatnot. But what really struck me was like how people look at the camera. Like, you know, I wonder what were people thinking because it was not something that was very usual and it's uninterrupted. People are just flowing in front of the cameras. As Inga said, I enjoyed the people looking into the camera because it, it just shows you also like just how novel this thing is for them. Let's move on. Shirley, do you want to pull up one more of your selections? Yes, I loved the dream of a rarebit fiend. That is my favorite of the decade. Just pure entertainment value. I loved it. And I hear again, it was to make people laugh. And um, to make you care at the same time. I have to say, too, this film is for adults. This is not for children, okay? Because they don't know. I don't know how or what the drinking age, which I know there wasn't one, but I don't know when kids started drinking. But you had to be a certain age to understand what's going on in this film. Wouldn't you say so, Shirley? Yes, I think so, too. And I think it was scary, too. I think it would be scary for kids. I thought the continuity was... Uh, they should have fired the continuity person. Even... Because uh, there, what happened to the table? It was supposed to How be. How continuous is your, are your dreams? <laughs> yes, right, you're right. I, it didn't need to be. I know that. I just, it was fun to watch, and that's part of it, isn't it? Yeah, and just for a quick uh, summary of the plot, uh, since I chose this as well, it's, it's about a night of excess. This guy who obviously is it's a drunk scene. Right after he finishes drinking and eating, the whole world is spinning on its axis, just like you would maybe show it today. I mean, I feel like you've seen this redone now, and it looks very similar. And they did such such an amazing job with this. And then he pops home, starts sleeping, and the furniture starts moving. His bed collapses. He starts flying through the air. He's trying to grab on to steeples. Everything's happening to him. And, you know, even before he starts flying around, there's three little men that start pounding on his head, you know? 
It's just like so, so perfect. Yeah. I think the other thing that struck me about this is actually the camera movement. There was so much, you know, in the spinning. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is like, yeah, like, you know, a handheld camera, which is something that I don't think we'd seen before. And then also when he's flying on the bed outside, the city is whizzing by. And so we have that lateral movement that we haven't seen again, almost as if it's on a dolly or something. And I'm not sure how they did that, but it seemed pretty novel for that time. This was created by Edwin S. Porter, who also did The Great Train Robbery. I mean, it really seems like a small community, both in France and the U.S., and they seem to cross paths a lot. I mean, the only person with all the films that we nominated that I think that didn't move to the U.S. was Melier and possibly Segundo de Chamon, who moved from Spain to France. It just seems like such a small community who had access and upper class, obviously, who had access to this new machinery and this new amazing technology. Just like with Fantasmagori, uh, this one's, you know, very similar. I just I just think that you see the future in this. And this, as much as, you know, the great train robbery and Voyage à la Lune, which came earlier, combined a whole bunch of elements to create a single narrative story. I just think this one used all of that plus more. I mean, plus you get people flying through the air, um, which I guess you get in Voyage à la Lune, but also with the spinning handheld cameras, with the superimposition, all of it. I just think it's so cool and imaginative. I was really impressed by the bed. That was like, for me, one of the many parts of how this film like really move, you know, filmmaking forward. It's like, wow, they figure out how to spin this bed really fast. And the perspective was correct. That was very particular of this film. And what's also interesting about black and and white, and this is actually something I found out after watching uh, the last picture show, because they chose to film in black and white, um, is that the production designers actually had to choose specific colors so that not everything looked gray. So I did start photography. I grew up with photography and I spent many years in the dark room. And even though it's black and white, there's different intensities of black and white. You know, it was always about the differentiation of the shades. And so we will use different filters, red, green, yellow. And, you know, depending, I know if something was in one color when I saw it, I knew how it would register when I printed but I don't know if they will have this information at the time, although they were probably taking photos. I'm not sure if they will have figured that out. I'm not sure. So the next film I'm going to go with, I picked it because of more of a technical reason. Uh, it's called The Flying Train. It's a documentary from 1902. doesn't really have a story, but I picked it because I thought it really was planting the seeds about camera movements and camera angles. This was the first film that I saw that was on a high angle, like almost like God is looking at us. And I felt like everything else was very human scale. And, you know, they put the camera on a train and he was just kind of like washing the city. I believe it was in Berlin, in Germany. But most striking to me was the fact that, you know, they just put this huge camera, probably with a very heavy tripod, on the train 
And this was the beginning of like dollies and, you know, the idea that you the camera doesn't have to be steady. Well, and it was actually shot in 30 frames per second, which most of the things at that time were shot 15 to 18. So it's a lot smoother motion. And when you take a subway, there's so many noises. You hear all the clicks and clacks of every, you know, little section. And when you watch it silently, it just feels magical. Like you are floating along with it above the city. I oh, mean, it's like you're, it is like you're flying with the train. It's 68 millimeter. So huge resolution, almost as big as Lawrence of Arabia. I love that one. So the only one um, that we haven't talked about is Mary Jane's mishap. Of course, I love the fact that the main character is a woman, um, but I just loved the comedy that was in it. She was so good, like with all of the physicality and also these winks to the audience that she would do. She, you know, brushes her face and it turns into a mustache and then she looks at herself in the mirror and she like doesn't get it off and yet still smiles at the audience. Like like she's like, (laughs) yeah, I just felt like there was just so much fun that was being had in, in making this and a comedian, you know, that like was probably one of the first ones. Oh, and the other kind of more technical thing is that this is kind of one of the first times that I've seen the analytical editing where we like push in to do like a close up for us to see things a little bit better. You know, they cut into a close up so that we can see her. Laura Bailey is her name. She was actually also a vaudeville act. Uh, she she was a stage performer, did pantomime, and she was a burlesque singer. And she did comedy all the time. I mean, she was a comedic actor. I mean, you can just tell. I think there's nobody who does it better than her and Matthew Broderick, Ferris Bueller, and breaking the fourth wall, looking at the audience and, and bringing you in and being like, wink, wink, you're in on this joke. She actually... Uh, worked with her husband. And so her and her husband directed films. Her husband directed this one. And uh, her whole family was actually performers and they all did movies with them. And so I, th- I, th- I think that's really cool that, again, you just see that all the artists, the famous people of the time are being put on screen, which is what we do now. I mean, people who have talent, we want to spread that out to the world. Oh, she would perform live when they were showing the films of her husband, too. So she was actually performing and they would show the films of her in in these performances. So I thought that was really cool. I have to add the part that I love the most about this film is when they are at the cemetery and they have, um, you know, how you know, when somebody dies, usually put, you know, RIP for rest in peace. And they have right. in the cemetery. Rest right. In rest in pieces. pieces. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> I have to say, if we go more into the actor's brain. You know, we really start dwelling into what is charisma. I think all the other films have great acting, but the acting is not as evocative as this film because she just brings it to a different level. You know, you can think Al Pacino and all those people. I think she has something very similar to that. So the other film that I pick is The Man with the Rubber Head, 1901 by George Melies. Yeah, George Melies second one here one thing that i love about film in general is when the audience has a visceral reaction you know when you go to let's say the avengers and the avengers is so much more fun in person because they're cheering together at the theater and they're so pumped and with this film um, one of the other kind of 
visceral reactions I like are disturbing films. As soon as I saw the head that was not attached to a body, I'm like, what is going on? Like I don't, <laughs> And then it ended up being a comedy. But sometimes you get so cerebral, like with Nolan or whatever, you don't realize you're in a body sitting in the chair until they make you actually react like that. And this film did that for me. So I, lo- I loved it. Well, yeah, and if you just think about, like, the Lumiere brothers, like, even the train coming in, the shot of a train coming in, people were like, oh, my God, is that real? Like, you know, people were, like, freaking out, like, just with this, like, train moving towards them. So, you know, I made a short that was making fun of them later where they refilmed the showing of the Lumiere and they said, like, a countryman watching the cinematograph, I think it was called, and uh, they have them jump out of the way. (laughs) Oh, it's just wonderful hearing all of you. Just wonderful. It's wonderful hearing you, Shirley. It's such a different perspective, actor's perspective. We're going to vote on each other's nominations. Everyone else is voting not on their own, but on everyone else's. We're going to tabulate those scores, and the best of each person's nomination is going to go on to the final round. Here we are at the final round, and... um, of my five nominations, the winner was Phantasmagory by Emil Cole from 1908. The second nomination was Dream of a Rare Bit Fiend. The third was Mary Jane's Mishap. And then the last one, uh, The Man with the Rubber Head, which was Inga's sole nomination. All of us will rank uh, these movies and we'll have the winner of the Fresh Air Award. We have an animation. We have uh, an impressionistic comedy. We have a straight comedy, uh, kind of a dark comedy as described. And then we have a special effects sort of comedy. We do have a winner. This is the winner that we've been waiting, you know, 120 years for. The Fresh Air Award. This is the 1900s. That is from 1900 to 1909. The Fresh Air Award, and the winner is the one that we all nominated. The winner is Phantasmagory from 1908 by Emil Cole. Yay. The first animation in film history. If only you were here to receive the award. He lived until 96, so he had a pretty, he did go bankrupt in that time. From it, I think he started a studio and he went bankrupt like many of these people. But um, he lived to a ripe old age. He had a good life, I hope. <laughs> Artists uplift us in, you know, no matter what situation. And it's so important. You know, a life without art is a very sad life. Yeah, even this podcast, I mean, you know, Inga's down in Miami and Coco and Shirley are over there in Minneapolis. So, I mean, we're hundreds and hundreds of miles apart. This is the last episode of Four Wind Films Season 4 featuring a short. We will have another Fresh Air Award next December, and we will cover the 1910s, a totally silent decade again. And in the forecast to look forward to, uh, Four Wind Films' latest co-produced narrative is Paper Geese, and it is by Elizabeth Chatelaine. Uh, It was completed this year. It just has color correction to go through. Uh, and it will come out soon. So, Beth, do you want to pitch it real quickly and tell us what it's about? So, basically, it's a story about a father and a daughter, um, and they go on a goose hunt, and 
Unfortunately, the goose hunt doesn't go as planned. And so it's sort of a young girl who's really idolized her father, um, kind of realizing that he's human and, and also that she needs to go on her own path. So we shot it mostly in Fargo, North Dakota and around Fargo and some parts of um, Minnesota. It'll be probably my sixth or seventh short film that I've made. And I have to give it my personal recommendation. I got uh, lucky, lucky enough to see an advanced screener the other week. And I will say I, out of all best films, it's my favorite. And she really does something unique with the moods and and uses music to a new level and the way that she moves the camera through space really is emotional and uh, it's cool and uh, check it out when it comes out hopefully soon at a film festival near you or possibly online <laughs> with depending on the state of the world yeah it's yeah. been so great being with all of you i'm just thank you yeah. so much and stay safe yeah just yeah, wonderful anytime, justin and uh, one quick last thing before we sign off is we want to shout out to our sound mixer. Hey, Brian, Brian Trahan. Um, not only does he mix the sound, we have special sound effects for this episode that he created. And then on top of that, any additional music that you hear that's not our theme song. Our theme song is Loopster by Kevin McLeod. And uh, Brian created all the other music. And thank you to this year to Laura Davi, who helped throw all of our events, including today. She helped cook for me and Beth. Sorry, you guys uh, in other cities, Shirley and Inga didn't get to eat with us today, but that's the way it was. So let's sign off to 2020. Good riddance to bad rubbish. And we'll talk at you soon. Thank you, Justin, so much. Thank you. Yes, thank Thank you. you. Thank you, everyone. All right. Peace out.